Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. There's something about people who simply just think that they're the best. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you're sitting next to someone like that. Husbands, and not your wives, and wives, and not your husbands. Someone who just thinks they're the greatest. And as I thought about this, I immediately thought of former President Donald Trump. He thinks he's the greatest, doesn't he? In fact, he says it. He says, I'm the greatest. I'm the best president. Everybody says it. Someone said it. Maybe you said it. Maybe I'm the greatest. Maybe I'm the greatest president of all time. You can hear him saying it, can't you? I also thought about Muhammad Ali, the great boxer, who said, if you even dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. And we dismiss both characters, sort of, as exaggerations, of course. Maybe they don't think they're the greatest. It's sort of this thing they put on, love it or hate it. But who in this world would dare to say, I am the greatest, with all honesty, being genuine and authentic, they really think that they are the greatest. Maybe Donald Trump would actually say that. It made me think of an uh, ancient theologian from the medieval church named Anselm. And Anselm, in one of his classical arguments for the existence of God, he said, that is actually one of the proofs for the existence of God. The fact that we think in superlatives, good, better, best, The very fact that our minds are wired that way to think that there is something better, something greater. And Anselm's argument is this. The fact that we can think that there is something or someone who is the greatest proves the existence of God. It's there. It's wired in us that there is something greater. There is someone who is the greatest. And today as we discover this new name for God, maybe new to many of you, El Elyon, It is not the name of a Mexican restaurant. It is the name of God, the Most High. That word Elyon, you know the name El by now, Elohim, God, powerful, strong, mighty, that title for God. But Elyon kind of comes from the same root, and it means top, uppermost, the greatest. It was used in the ancient world of architecture. It was used of geography for rank for succession, for age. And it simply brings to mind when we say Elohim Elyon, that he is the most high, greatest, best, top, uppermost being that there ever has been or ever will be. And we read this in Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17, the first time that this name appears in Scripture. It's a bizarre episode, granted, but stick with me and we'll, we'll plow through it together. Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Sherdo Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, that's Abraham they're meeting, and Melchizedek, 
king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, El Elyon. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, there he takes that name, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. This is the first time this name appears in Scripture, and it's important because it appears like once, twice, three times, and then Abraham picks up on it, and he uses it also. El Elyon, God Most High. And in this little episode, which will just be our starting point today, and some other places in Scripture, we see that this name, this title for God, the Most High God, reveals several things about God's character to us. Number one today, God Most High, El Elyon, God is able. God is able. Abram needed constant reminders of this, didn't he? The covenants that God made with him, the promises that he made Abram, the plans that he laid out for Abram, the events that went on in Abram's life. He needed constant reminders, didn't he, that God was the one who was doing this. This was God's promise. It would come to pass according to God's power and would all be according to God's plan. And when we see this interaction, not, not two chapters later than when God first delivered that covenant to Abraham, I will bless you, I will multiply you. Not two chapters later, we have this encounter with this mysterious priest and king named Melchizedek. And once again, Abraham is reminded that this is God's doing, God's power, and God's plan. And four times in this episode, beginning in verse 18, we have the use of that title. Abraham meets Melchizedek, verse 18, a priest of God Most High. And then Melchizedek begins to bless Abram in verse 19. Blessed be Abram by God Most High. Verse 20, he lifts praise to God. And blessed be God Most High. And later in verse 22, Abram, having heard that title now several times, he repeats it back. God Most High. It's an interesting way for Abram to describe God at this point. You might think, well, why is that so interesting? Because we have to remember where Abram came from. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, gives us this little historical note into the past behind Abram before this point. That Abram and his fathers were pagans. They were pagans in the land of Ur with false gods, idol worship, False religion until God, the Most High, called him. Until Yahweh, the one true and living God, revealed himself to Abram and said, Abram, get up from where you are, leave your country, leave your family, and go where I will show you. I am the one true, living, and Most High God. And so it's funny now that we see Abram, two chapters after that initial introduction to this living one true God, that he now realizes who that God is, 
and based on Melchizedek's confession of who God is, confesses the same thing. This is none other than God the Most High. This is the God who makes promises. This is the God who has power to fulfill those promises according to his plan. And God says via this name to Abram through Melchizedek, I am not like those other so-called gods. I'm not like those other idols. And if you know anything about the story of Abraham, you know, uh, episode after episode, Abraham is having to use trickery and deceit and lying. And he thinks he needs to take the plan of God into his own hands and do it himself. And God reminds him again and again and again, no, I'm not like those other pagan gods. I don't need your trickery. I don't need your deceit. I don't need your lying and your scheming. I am the living true God. I am God most high. And I will do as I please with you, Abram, and with all the nations and the kings of earth. And this encounter with Melchizedek, whose name means the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. But he's also introduced to us as the king of Salem, the king of Shalom, the king of peace. Later in the book of Hebrews, it says he has no beginning or no end, no mother or father. Is a very mysterious figure indeed that would be the king of peace, the king of Salem, a king and a priest who has no beginning and no end. Nobody knows where he came from, no mother or father. Who is he? I don't know. I'll let you figure that out. But in this mysterious encounter with this mysterious priest, one of the first confessions from Abram's mouth is informed by what Melchizedek says about God. God most high, God most high, Melchizedek says. And Abram repeats, God most high. And this is an interesting little story because here it is most needed for Abraham to know he is God most high. After his defeat of this king, after his success in defeating these armies, Abram needs to be reminded this is God, not you. And he seems to get the point. This is the sovereign God over these other kings, over these other nations, not you. But this is good news for Abram because when God is seen as sovereign and when he is understood as Lord, we understand that he's the one who is giving Abram the victory and giving Abram the success that he has. And Abram understands that in those verses right after Melchizedek blesses him, the king of Sodom offers him all these goods, verse 22, but Abram refuses those goods and says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord most high, possessor of heaven and earth, verse 23, that I would not take a thread or anything from you, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. He says to the king of Sodom, no, I'm not taking anything from you because then you'll think that you gave me success and you didn't, God did. And this success is not even mine, Abram says. It is God who is the creator of everything. Verse 19, it is God most high, possessor of everything, who has given me this victory. Verse 20, uh, verse 20 it is God most high who has delivered my enemies into my hand. And verse 22, because it is the possessor of heaven and earth, because it is the deliverer of my enemies that has given me this victory, you owe nothing to me. And all glory and all honor goes to God. For from him and through him and to him are all things, Abram might say. Abram had many more lessons to learn. But there's a fundamental lesson learned right here. Unlike those former false pagan gods and idols, 
Abram is now dealing with the most high God. The one who says, I do as I please, when I please, with whom I please, to execute all my holy will. And I want you to see something. On one side, yes, this this humbles Abram. This is a reminder to him, as we read from Isaiah, Abram, you're nothing. You're less than nothing and dust. You're like a grasshopper in the eyes of the Lord. It's a reminder of that humility that he should carry with him. But on the other side, it's also a tremendous blessing. As we saw in Psalm 8, it is because I am nothing and because I am like dust on the earth that it is so remarkable, Psalm 8, that the Lord who created everything should be mindful of me and mindful of me. Of Abram. And Abram realizes this and he returns the glory to God. On one side, being humbled, but on the other side, worshiping God for who he is and that he has taken the power and promise and given it to him. And if God is able to do what he says, and if God has stepped out of heaven to make this promise and to reveal this plan and to show his power, Abram says, then I can probably trust him to fulfill what he says he's going to do. Trusting God is one of those warm, fuzzy religious concepts that we sing about, trust and obey, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And it is wonderful, it's warm, and it's fuzzy, and it's cozy, but it's also hard. Trusting God is one of the hardest religious concepts because we, like Abram, at times, like to take things into our own hands, don't we? Our problems, our trials, the things we're going through, we like to take it into our own hands and base our thoughts and our feelings and our actions off of what we think is best. Without consulting God, without going to God in prayer, without studying his word, let me handle this in my time and my way, we say, instead of trusting God. And at the end of that, what is our ultimate goal? We want to be able to fix it. We We want to be able to do it ourselves. And we might not say this part out loud, but at the end of the day, it's because we want the glory for ourselves. And this scene with Abram and Melchizedek and these kings that Abram has defeated and this name, God Most High, reminds us not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in our works or our plans or our power for our glory, but to trust in God who is exalted as the highest overall. And to trust that because he is the highest, he is therefore able to do what he says he's going to do. And it's a lesson, yes, that is meant to humble us, but not to hurt us. It is there to humble us and to help us to see who God is and therefore to trust him. As the psalmist says in Psalm 121, verse 1, to lift up our eyes to the hills and ask, where does my help come from? Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And because he is the maker, the possessor of heaven and earth, he is able to give you victory because he is God most high. Number two, this name reveals that God is great. 
We think about these names and, and the plan and the purpose of God. We have to remind ourselves, yes, the plan, the purpose, uh, the story of the Bible is wonderful. And we see his ability and his greatness to do what he says he's going to do. But it's more than just about the plan. It's more than what we see in just the story unfolding before us, as wonderful as it is. We have to look at God's very character. This name reveals not just his power, not just his plan and his purpose, but this name, God Most High, reveals who God is in his very nature. And the next big story in the Bible is the story of Exodus. You don't have to turn here because I'm going to go through a couple scriptures here. And I want you to think about the story of the Exodus. If I, if I were to ask you what the story of the Exodus was about, we might give the simple Sunday school answer, uh, God freed his people. He sent Moses to liberate the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt and take them to the promised land. And you wouldn't be wrong. That is the story. But what is that story about? And God tells us, Exodus chapter 7 and verse 5. He says, I will show my glory to Pharaoh. I will stretch out my hand against Egypt. Look at the first part of that. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, he reiterates that same thing. By this, you shall know that I am the Lord. You see this? On one hand, I'm going to reveal my glory in Egypt that they know I am the Lord. But I'm also going to reveal my glory so that you will know that I am the Lord. Exodus chapter 10 and verse 2. That you may tell in your hearing of your sons and your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them. Why? So that you may know that I am the Lord. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 14 verse 18. One more. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So what's the Exodus about? The glory of God. So that all the world, Egypt, Pharaoh, the Hebrews, Moses, all the nations that will hear will know what? That God is the Lord. Why the plagues? Not just because Pharaoh said no. Not just to free the people, but so they would know that God is the Lord. Why the Exodus? Why the Red Sea? Why the manna? Why the law? Why the entirety of Scripture? So that you may know that God is the Lord. Above all other idols, all pharaohs, all kings, all nations, all politicians, all so-called religions and worldviews, God says, I am that I am, and I am exalted above all. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, so that we might respond in this way. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Performing wonders. Who is like you among the gods? And who will not fear you? Who is like the Lord? No one. Nothing. Go back to Anselm's argument for a minute. Can you think of one greater than the one who is the greatest can you think of one higher than the one who says, I am the highest? Can you think of one bigger and better than one who says, I am that I am? Turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. We're not going to read this, the whole text again that Morgan read for us, but I wanted to 
skip through some of those verses and ask these questions to you. Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 12. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in the measure and weighed the mountains and scales and its hills in a balance? You think of the grandeur of this verse. Who has measured the world? Who holds everything in his hands? And it's a simple thought to look at that and think, well, of course, God. But think of the magnitude of this. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Who shows him counsel? Who taught him knowledge? Verse 14, who shows him the way of understanding? Verse 15 says the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Verse 16, this country of Lebanon, the whole country would not suffice for a burnt offering that would give God the glory that he deserves. Verse 17, all the nations are nothing, less than nothing actually, and emptiness before him. Verse 18 then, to whom then will you liken God? Who will you compare him with? An idol? The Lord goes on to describe the foolishness of idols. You cut down a tree, you carve out an image. You go find a big rock somewhere, you carve out an image. Human hands making these gods after their own likeness. Propping them up and worshiping them as if they could speak, as if they could do anything. Oh, maybe they overlaid them with gold. Isn't that pretty? It's still a foolish, stupid task. They're carried around by men. They're propped up by men. And God says, will you compare me with one of these? Verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning, verse 22? I am the one who sits over the whole earth. The inhabitants are like grasshoppers. I am the one who stretches out the universe like a curtain. I bring princes, verse 23, to nothing, and I make the rulers of earth as emptiness. Verse 24, he pictures them like little frail plants, scarcely sown, barely taking root before they're ripped up, And blown away by the wind of God's nostrils. Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. The God of heaven and earth. The one true and living God. The most high God that has revealed himself in scripture. There is no one like him. There is nothing like him. Nothing compares to him in his power and his glory and his holiness. His holiness is insurmountable. His righteousness is incomprehensible. His greatness is unfathomable. His size incalculable and his power is invincible. He's in a class all by himself. Unique, supreme, preeminent, exalted, ultimate, infinite, eternal, unchanging, unyielding, unstoppable, unshakable, unalterable, unhindered, unbound, and unlimited. And we should ask again, who is like the Lord? No one. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we have that famous story of Elijah challenging the false prophets of Baal 
Meet me on Mount Carmel, he says. Bring 450 of you guys. And you know what? 400 more of the other God. And y'all build an altar over there, and I'll build an altar over here. And you sacrifice a bull and put it on yours, and I'll sacrifice a bull and put it on mine. And then we're going to pray to our gods. You pray to Ashtaroth, and you pray to Baal all day long. Take your clothes off and jump around and act like fools and see what happens. Nothing. But I'll build my altar to the one true and living God, Yahweh, the most high God. And I'll call out to him. And in just a few sentences, a few short words, Yahweh answers in fire. And the people say to Elijah, Yahweh who ha Elohim. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. They say it twice. He is the God who answers in fire. And all the false gods are nothing. And all their prophets are nothing. And then the best part of the Bible story, the part we leave out on the children's programs, all the false prophets are taken down by the creek and slaughtered. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, one of my favorite stories in all the Old Testament. The Israelites had begun to treat the Ark of the Covenant like it was some sort of uh, talisman for them, some sort of lucky charm that they could just carry around with them wherever they go, do whatever they want, disobey the law, worship idols, but hey, we've got the Ark and we'll win this fight. But here against this fight against the Philistines, they lose. And the Ark of the Covenant is taken. Can you imagine their horror? What? It didn't work? Our little magic box didn't work for us? They take the ark, the Philistines do, to the city of Ashdod. They place it in their temple, in front of their false god, Dagon. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3, we read this. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Watch this. This is included for a purpose here. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. The next verse, verse 4. But when they arose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold, and only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Don't you love that? The Lord, even while teaching Israel a lesson, about he will, how he will not be used as some sort of little magic box, a lucky charm to get what they want. Even in teaching them that lesson, and the ark is taken to this foreign land and put in this pagan temple, even then, the power of God reigns supreme over this false god. He falls face down before the ark of the Lord. And then they have to prop him back up. And as they prop him back up, they leave and they think, okay, we've did our job. Dagon is back in his place. The next day, he's fallen again, and this time his head and his hands are cut off. And the lesson is clear, isn't it? There is none greater than Yahweh. He is the one true and living God. And all men and all kings and all nations and all idols and all false gods and all demons will fall before him. And will you not bow before him? Unbelievers this morning, refusing 
to bow before this God. Refusing to give your heart and your life and control of your being to him. Would you refuse him the worship he is due? Would you refuse him the repentance that he commands of you? Today his invitation stands open to you, unbelievers. Bow before this God before the judgment comes. Believers, there's something for us here too, I think. How is your submission and your obedience to this God who says he is the most high and should be the most high in your life? We love these stories, don't we? We love the stories of David and Goliath and this little scene in the city of Ashdod. We love those times when God reveals himself to be the most high God. And we say, amen. But do our lives reflect that? Do our lives reflect his greatness? Do our lives reflect the fact that he is the highest? And he is the most exalted. He is worthy. How easily we turn to other gods. How easily we turn to ourselves. Back in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, but before the challenge ever took place on Mount Carmel, Elijah chastised the people of God. He says, how long will you go on limping between these two opinions? Either serve Baal or serve Yahweh. But for crying out loud, just make a choice. Just be big girls and big boys and say, this is the God I'm going to serve. But don't claim Yahweh as your God while serving Baal. Oh, how often, church, we do the same thing in our lives. Jesus is Lord. God is the most high. And then live as if that were not the case. And then treat our neighbors as if that were not the case. And go on sinning willfully as if that were not the case. There's good news here today, too. Number three. In this name, God Most High. God is revealed. God is revealed. Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces the birth of Jesus. It's a familiar scene, if you really think about it. The Lord appearing to someone and promising them this uh, uh, seemingly impossible conception, a seemingly impossible birth of a seemingly impossible son to bring about God's seemingly impossible promise and plan to his people. And yet here we are with that same story again to this young maiden, this virgin named Mary. We have the promise of a child and she rightly objects, how is this going to be? Since I'm a virgin, how is this going to happen? And the angel tells her in Luke chapter 1 verse 32, this son will be the king, the son of the most high. In verse 35 he says, the power of the most high will overshadow you. Isn't that interesting? In this promise of the birth of Jesus, we have repeated in those two verses this very name for God, El Elyon, the Lord God Most High. And the response to Mary's question, how will this be, is the same response that God gave Abram time and time again. Abram, Mary, this isn't up to you. 
Who's in charge of this? God most high. And in the birth of this one who the angel calls in verse 32, the son of the most high, we see God most high revealed to us. Because this was not just the birth of any son or any child. But John tells us in John chapter 1 verse 14 that this is the birth of the word. The word who was with God and the word who also was God. And as he is born, John says in verse 14, this word who is God becomes flesh. And what does he come to do? John chapter 1 verse 18. He comes to reveal God to us. No one has ever seen God, John says. But the only God who is at the Father's side, this word who was with God and was God and became flesh, he has revealed him or he has made him known. So in the person of Jesus, this son of the most high, we see God most high. The same God in the Old Testament who opened barren wombs, who brought down the plagues on Egypt, who gave his people victory, who parted seas, who rained down manna from heaven and gave them quail to eat in the wilderness, who conquered kings and nations and so-called gods. It is the same God who is now born of a virgin, who walks on water, who gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, who raises the dead. The same God who is then crucified and buried and the same God who was raised to life three days later. And we ask with the disciples in Matthew chapter 8 verse 27, what kind of man is this? What manner of a man is this? He is the most high, made flesh, dwelling, living, walking, living, dying, rising, ascended, ruling, and coming again. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says about Jesus, Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is there any confusion who Jesus is? Did the Bible leave anything out for us? Did the apostles not spell it out for us? Did Jesus not spell it out for us? Can he be anything or anyone less than God most high? I was pretty good at English in high school. I wasn't good at much else. I didn't try anyway. But I know my superlatives pretty well. And if someone says, This is the highest. I know that nothing can be higher. And too often when we talk about Jesus and in our invitations for people to receive the gospel and be saved, we talk about making Jesus Lord or making Jesus King or making Jesus Savior or making Jesus Master. Hear me this morning. You can't no more make Jesus Lord as you can make the world round. Jesus is Lord. So the question isn't, have you made Jesus Lord? He is Lord. The question is, have you bowed to him as Lord? He is the most high already. Are you living within that reality? Individually this morning, your heart, are you saved? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Most High God through a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith? Individually this morning, do your affections and your desires and your thoughts and your life and your priorities match up with that confession, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Most High? How about in your family, your schedule? Your priorities, your calendar, your activities, your plans. Who or what do they reflect is Lord of your life? Who or what do your plans and your desires as a family reflect is most high to you? How about in our church? Does our mission, the Great Commission, Does that reflect what we're doing in our serving, in our participation, our loving? Does that reveal that to us as a church, God is most high? Jesus is most high? Some of us here today need to bow to the Lord Jesus for the first time. In a crowd this size, as much as I would like to be confident that everyone knows the Lord and everyone is saved... Perhaps there is some unsaved person here today, an unbelieving person. Maybe no one else knows it. Maybe your family thinks you're good to go. After all, you said the prayer, you did the thing, you checked the box, you go to church. But Jesus has never been Lord. You fulfilled all the things, you said all the right words, but your heart was far from God. Today you need to repent 
in you to turn to Jesus, not to make him anything, but to bow to him for who he is as Lord and Master and Savior. The believers here today, maybe you need a reorientation. Everything we talked about above with the calendars and the priorities and the schedules and your family. And believers, you say today, Jesus, you are Lord of all. But maybe you find yourself from day to day and moment to moment serving something or someone less. And here's the thing, believers. You need to call it out for what it is. Don't make an excuse for it anymore. And you know what it is. I don't have to sit up here and speculate as to what it is for you or for me. You know what it is. I know what it is. And you need to kill it. You need to kill it now. That's what we do to idols. We tear them down. We dash them into pieces. We don't let them sit on the throne of our lives, the altar of our hearts. The question isn't this morning whether God is most high or whether Jesus is Lord of all. God is who and what he is. And the question for you today is, are you on his side? And listen, on one side of that question is a warning. Judgment. The wrath of God against your sin. The anger of God against your rebellion. Yes, there is judgment there. There is anger. There is wrath. But the other side of the coin that is just as true is that not just is this a warning of judgment, but it's an invitation to salvation. Because on the other side of this promise of judgment is this offer of refuge. And Psalm 91 verse 1 tells us, He who dwells in the secret place, the refuge of the Most High, will then abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Today, will you know God as your judge only? Or will you know him as your judge and your refuge? And the difference is right there in the middle. Will you bow to him as Lord? If you don't know him as your refuge, you have everything to fear this morning. If you don't know him as Savior, you have everything to fear. But the good news is if you do know him as your refuge and you do know him as your Savior, you have nothing to fear. And what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 38, is true of you. I am confident that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you know that confidence and that love in submission to this Most High God today? El Elyon, God Most High, is able. He is great. And he has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And the question for you today is, do you see, do you believe, and have you bowed your heart to him? Our God, we thank you that you are God most high. And above all the other so-called gods and 
religions of this world, you own everything. God, everything bows to you. God, this morning I ask that you would remind us if there are unbelievers in the room today, you would remind them even if they do not bow to you now, they will bow to you one day. And the difference will be that will be bowing to you in judgment on that day. But you invite them to bow before you for salvation right now. God, do that in unbelievers here even now as I'm speaking. Convert their hearts, change their minds, change their wills. And draw them to you even today. God, for us believers, I ask that you would make the words of this song true to us. Be thou my vision, O God of my heart. Be the highest. Be the best. Be the greatest. Be who you are to us and in us and through us. And help us as believers to submit all things to you. Help us to bow before you every day as Lord and to give you all glory and honor and praise for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. God, our simple prayer this morning is that you would be magnified, that you would be exalted in our songs, in our preaching, in our reading, in our lives as we leave. Be our vision, God. Be first in our hearts. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.